in the last session I was talking about uh, hearing David Suchet, the actor, uh, interviewed and um, talking, he's talking about serving the, the audience and serving the author. Uh, I also heard him talking about, another, on another occasion, his conversion. I wonder if you know the story of his conversion. David Suchet was, had uh, tried different religions and he thought he was, he was on a um, acting, he was acting uh, in a play in Canada and he thought he ought to try Christianity, uh, which is a good idea. Anyway, uh, he looked for a Bible in his hotel room and he said it must be the only hotel room in the world without a Gideon's Bible in it. So he thought, where will I find a Bible? So he thought, perhaps the Bible Society sells Bibles. So he uh, found the Bible Society and rang up and said, uh, do you by any chance sell Bibles? To which the answer was, yes, of course they sold Bibles. <laughs> what kind of a place is this? So he went and bought a Bible and started reading it. He decided to read Romans. And he said, uh, in acting school, they'd been trained, they'd been taught, when you read a letter, read it as if it's written to you personally. So he read Romans through as if it was written to him personally. And by the time he'd finished reading Romans, he was converted. Isn't that wonderful? That wonderful. Uh, and the other thing I remember from the first interview was he was asked what, what he liked doing best in the world. He said, having a cup of tea with my wife, <laughs> which I think is a lovely reply uh, when you're a world-famous person. Yeah. And if you asked me what I like doing best in life, I wouldn't be able to say that because I don't have a wife, but if I did have a wife, my answer would be having a cup of tea with my wife, <laughs> just, to, just to clarify that. Okay, let's return to the uh, book of Esther. Uh, beginning at chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set, set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Well, you might wonder why there's this 
uh, antipathy or uh, lack of understanding or more than, more than that, dislike between Haman and Mordecai. And the answer is found uh, in, uh, the clue is found rather in chapter 3 and verse 1, that Haman was an Agagite. Well, there's nothing worse than being an Agagite, is there? Are there any Agagites in the room? Can't see any. Let's turn back to Exodus uh, chapter 17. Uh, I'll read from verse 8. Uh, the people of Israel have escaped Egypt. They're on the way towards Mount Sinai. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at the Rephidim. So Mosh, Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword." Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, what's that that's got to do with it? We also need to look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, here we find that there's a continuing battle between uh, uh, the Jews and Amalek, the tribe of Amalek, the people of Amalek. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, notice that name of the king, Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, 
the fatted calves and lambs, all that was good, it would not destroy them, all that were despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. And then uh, Saul gets into trouble because he hasn't killed Agag, and so uh, he does kill him later on uh, in the chapter. So the Amalekites attacked the people of God under Moses in the desert. Their king in Saul's day was Agag, and the descendants of Agag were called Agagites. So Amalek, the Amalekites become the Agagites, and there's a continual uh, war between God's people and the Amalekites, or the Agagites. And that war, I think, is reflected in the conflict between uh, Mordecai, who is of the house of Saul, descendant of Saul, and Haman, who is an Agagite. Now, you might find this continual feud hard to understand, so let me tell you a story. I had a good friend who was an army chaplain, and he'd worked uh, with the United Nations in the Middle East, uh, and his job was to go to a village where the United Nations Army had been to find out if the soldiers had done any damage. Well, he went to the village and asked the village leaders, did the soldiers do any damage? And their reply was, well, women were raped and children massacred and the city destroyed, the town destroyed. He discovered they weren't talking about the United Nations, but the soldiers of Alexander the Great in 325 BC. But when you live in a closed community, you remember old grievances. They last for thousands and thousands of years. And that's the background to this story. It's, we, would, we find it hard to believe, I think. But there are many places in the world, aren't there, where battles between two people go on for thousands of years, in fact. That's, that's still happening in our world today. Uh, part of the reason for the, the, that Muslims don't like Christians is because of the Crusades in the uh, 12th and 13th centuries. So uh, people do remember these feuds. They go on for a long time. So Haman the Agagite, a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and Mordecai the Jew, uh, this ancient conflict and deep identity. So that's Haman. Uh, Mordecai, I think, it's, it's really bizarre behaviour, isn't it? Because he told Esther not to tell people that she was a Jew. But here he is uh, when Agag passes by. He won't bow down and pay homage. Now, uh, we might think, well, perhaps he was afraid of idolatry. But no, that's not the point at all. Uh, in this society, bowing down to people and paying homage was just an ordinary part of life. It's, it's, it didn't indicate that you thought the person was a god. It was just the way in which you respected people, the way in which we don't do it nowadays, uh, except when we write a letter uh, of complaint and then end it with, with great respect, which usually means none at all. That's right. But the bizarre thing is that Mordecai does not bow down and pay homage, perhaps because he knows 
that uh, Haman is an Agagite, an Amalekite, and he knows that he is a good Jew, shouldn't uh, bow down to him because he's an enemy. But then, of course, he's exposing the fact that he is a Jew. Do you see that? The king, verse 3, the king's servants who at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Uh, and when they spoke to him day after day, he wouldn't listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had, he, he had told them he was a Jew. So he's told those people he's a Jew. Now Haman knows that Mordecai's a Jew. So, of course, uh, He's angry with Mordecai because he won't respect him in public and he's angry with Mordecai because he's a Jew. But then you see uh, that Haman, the servant of King Ahasuerus, is as extravagant uh, in his actions as the king has been. Verse 8, verse 6 rather, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Well, that is a, I would call that an overreaction, wouldn't you? Do you agree with that, an overreaction? Someone's offended you, you decide to kill all Mordecai's people throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, just think for a moment. Uh, the Jews, uh, where are they living at this time? The answer is in the kingdom of Persia. If they're in Jerusalem, they're in the kingdom of Persia. If they're anywhere in the Babylonian Empire, they're in the kingdom of Persia. If they've gone down to Egypt, they're in the kingdom of Persia. So what's at stake here is not just Mordecai and his family, extended family, it's all the Jews in the world are threatened with death. And what happens if all the Jews in the world die? There can be no Jesus, can there? No descendant of Abraham. No king after the of the, a descendant of King David. There can be no Messiah, no Christ, no future for the world if all the Jews in the world are destroyed by Haman's plan. So uh, we're, we're used to thinking about genocide. We see many examples of it in the world uh, today and in human history. In the 20th century, one and a half million Armenians were killed in Turkey. Six million Jews and five million others by Nazis. In Rwanda, we had the, uh, the Tutsi and Hutus massacre. Uh, we, we've had, never had more refugees. 41 million refugees and 12 million stateless people in the world today, many fleeing from political persecution. So. You might think this is an extravagant story, but actually, in the light of the history of the world, it isn't an extravagant story. It's quite a believable story, particularly as the Persian Empire was an extremely well-managed empire. They could get uh, a message from the capital 
uh, to the farthest extent of the empire in five days. They had such a good system of uh, horses and proper roads and things like that. They didn't have traffic jams like we have because the king's messengers had priority. So they were a very, very efficient uh, empire. And Haman is the most powerful person in the empire under the king Ahasuerus. And so he decides to kill all the Jews in the empire. Well, he's also a, a superstitious man. So we find that he cast lots, uh, that is, throw die, throws die, dice, to find out when would be the best time to kill the Jews. So in the first month of the year, the month of Nisan, which was in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. They cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So they found that the best time, superstitious time, to kill off the Jews was 12 months' time. Not immediately, but 12 months' time. And this is one of the extraordinary coincidences of the book. So Haman then goes to the king. There's a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws, so it's not in to the king's profit to tolerate them. Please notice the only law which has been disobeyed is that Mordecai hasn't bowed down to Haman, but Haman expands it to say, well, they don't keep your laws anywhere. And uh, Ahasuerus, being a foolish king, doesn't check up, believes Haman. So verse 9, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it in the king's treasury. So what does he do? He bribes King Ahasuerus to get what he wants. It's, it's so corrupt, isn't it? So the king, what a weak king he is, pathetic, put, took his signet ring from his hand, put it, gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money has given you the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Uh, that's actually a polite way of saying, I'll take the money, you take the Jews. So uh, the, the massive... Uh, Civil service gets into action. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Remember, the planned massacre is the 12th month. An edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps, to the governors over all the provinces. That includes the province of Judah, where Jerusalem is, uh, and to the officials over all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So they really are inciting a massive attack on the Jews with the enticement of getting their good. So even if somebody thought, well, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't dislike the Jews, I won't bother killing them, the promise was you'll get their goods. So 
The whole thing is corrupt, isn't it? The couriers, uh, the copy of the document must be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Now, the wicked, the wicked thing is that what Haman organised, now listen carefully to this, was not that the army would go and kill people, but that ordinary people would kill their neighbours. So he was bringing about a fatal dislocation within the empire where your neighbour was your enemy if you were a Jew. And you might notice that totalitarian regimes in the 20th century followed the same pattern where you can be betrayed by a neighbour. And that's a dreadful thing to do to a society, isn't it? Because if you're by, betrayed by a neighbour, then your family will never forgive the neighbour. You, 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 you build up a kind of internal conflict and mutual suspicion within the empire. It was a wicked thing to do. Uh, and it causes so much social damage to build this kind of enmity and hatred uh, within a, a, a kingdom or an empire. Well, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. The decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and king and the Haman sat down to drink. The city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Well, let me say again, the massacre of all the Jews in the world would mean that there would be no Jesus. So what do Mordecai and Esther do? When Mordecai learnt all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. This is a very different Mordecai from Mordecai who is keeping quiet about the fact that he's a Jew, isn't it? One extraordinary transformation. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and lamenting. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. They told her about Mordecai. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn why this, what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and saying, all the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, called, there is but one law to be put to death. 
except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. And then the extraordinary statement of faith, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Extraordinary statement of faith, isn't it, Mordecai had, that God would somehow rescue his people. But here's the challenge to Esther. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, I think those are most moving words, aren't they? Uh, He's saying, do you not think that God has placed you where you are in order to serve him at this very time? I want us to pause to think about that for a moment. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Does this mean that really important people are placed strategically by God and unimportant people aren't placed strategically by God? No, the Bible makes it very clear that God places all of us strategically for special opportunities and special times to do something which you alone can do, which I alone can do. We have to think of our lives from God's perspective. From God's perspective, he's placed each of us where he wants us to be with people he wants us to know, with jobs he wants us to do, with prayers he wants us to pray, with relationships he wants us to develop and build, with good works he wants us to do. Every believer is placed strategically by God in his world. So please don't think, well, you know, the Bible's message is important people are placed strategically. No, every believer is an important person or every believer is placed strategically by God. So where you are, the place you live is not an accident. It's part of God's plan. And God's placed you there for a good purpose. So please see that this changes the way we think about our lives. We might think that, uh, you know, in our younger years, if I can put it this way, we had great opportunities to do things, but now we're older, we don't. Well, that's not the case, actually. Whatever age we are, God places us where we are strategically. Or you might think you're too young to make a significant impact on the world. That's not true either. God's placed you where you are, however young you are, or however ill you are, or however weak you are, or whatever, because he has a good purpose. So my uh, stepmother was 92 years old in in her aged care facility, uh, very weak. Uh, She said to me, why is God keeping me alive? 
She could see no purpose in her life. I said, well, I, I, I mean, I knew one of the nurses at the, uh, at the place, and I said, I know that you remember everybody's name, all the staff and all the other patients, and you always thank the staff for what they do, and you always inquire about their welfare. Now, my stepmother had done that all her life. That's just the way she lived. She was still, though very weak and bedridden, still interested in people enough to ask to remember their names, how wonderful, to thank the staff for every, every kindness and to inquire about people's welfare. So I said, you're being a blessing to people. That's why God is keeping you alive. So I want you, I really want you to go away from this weekend thinking that you're not irrelevant to God's plan. You are crucial to God's plan for this world. So the life you lead and the good things you do and the prayers you pray and the conversations you have and the way you treat people and the kind of life you lead, uh, all of these things are really important in God's plan. I've been encouraged, encouraging people recently to memorise Bible verses because I discover that isn't so much the practice nowadays. But actually, this is a great verse to remember. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What a great verse to remind you, and you can use it to remind others, that you might think you're in a kind of holding pattern or you're past your use-by date or you have no opportunities, but boy, God's placed you just where you are with a good purpose in mind, whoever you are. That makes life much more exciting, doesn't it? Far more significant. The world may regard you as an insignificant person because the world now regards people who aren't earning money or spending money in a big way as irrelevant. That's why politicians talk about the economy all the time. They want us to be consumers. That's our significance. The more you buy, the more important you are. The more money you earn, the more you spend, the more important you are. So therefore, the, the poorer you are, the more irrelevant you are. And the less money you spend, the more irrelevant you are. But that's not God's way of thinking. Or the world says that, you know, the really important people are the beautiful people. And I often think that when I look in the mirror in the morning. I think, oh, yeah, sure, I'm really important. That's, uh, that's some beauty there, yeah. Then I wipe the mirror a bit and just discover it isn't the case. But that's what our world thinks. But actually, <laughs> everybody's important to God. And every believer, everyone who trusts in Jesus is important to God and part of God's great gospel strategy for this world. Well, praise God, Esther rises to the challenge. These are extraordinary words, I think. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law and Please remember these words, if I perish, I perish. In other words, she was saying, 
I may die in the attempt, but it's worth attempting. Isn't that extraordinary? She's willing to risk her life doing what she believes to be right, what God wants her to do. And even if she doesn't succeed, it's worth doing. That just shows how God dignifies our actions, even if they're not successful. It means the things we want and the prayers we pray, even if we don't see the answer to them, are still honouring to God. They still honour God, bring glory to God, because they show that we have God's interests at heart. We're not ruled by our own interests, but by the interests of God, the welfare of God, and God's big plan for the world. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Again and again in the history of Christian missions, we find the first generation of missionaries have worked hard and have sacrificed their lives with little result. But 50 years later, the gospel has borne fruit where they have lived and died. I heard recently of the first uh, missionary to a Bali, uh, he was a Dutch Reformed missionary. Uh, when, uh, uh, when he went there, he only managed to make one convert. And uh, later on, the man he converted became very angry with him and killed him. And then the man himself was hanged for murder. So <laughs> that doesn't look, I mean, not a very impressive record to send home to the Missionary Society or the supporters, is it? I went, I went, I converted one person and they killed me. Not the best kind of advertisement. But of course, when later missionaries went, then there were many people converted to Christ. So often, uh, at the beginning of a ministry, there's great sacrifice and not a lot to show for it. But later on, there is a great deal to show for it. That is, God has used that sacrifice. It appeared to have failed, and yet God used it for good. So even sacrifices which don't seem to produce any results are worth doing if we do them out of love for God and love for his people and love for his gospel. Let me read some words from 1 John and I'll ask you who they remind you of. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born from God and knows God. This is the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, that reminds me of Esther. She was willing to lay down her life for her people, wasn't she? She couldn't guarantee success. She might go before the king and be killed. But none of us can guarantee success, can we? All we can do is serve God as best we can and trust him for the outcome. And of course, in the bigger Bible story, Jesus, the Son of God, said, if you like, in the words of Esther, if I perish, I perish. In fact, I will perish. I lay down my life for the sheep that I might take it again. How much do you love your church? That much? Enough to sacrifice your life for your church? I can't imagine you'd need to do it, but that's the question, isn't it? Because the love we show fellow believers and our church, the people of God, ought to be the love that Jesus showed to us when he laid down his life for us. Who knows if you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? If I perish, I perish. May God, in his grace, help us to see, to trust that we are part of his strategic plan for this world, for this time. That we are alive at this time for such a time as this. And may we follow in the steps, footsteps of Esther and of Jesus in being willing to lay down our life for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.